going to ask you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll be looking at just a few verses for the message itself, but I will read the preceding context. I will start in just a moment or so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 beginning verse 1, but we'll be looking at verses 9 through 12 for the message. I've entitled the message, Pressing Onward to Please God. And you and I are called to a whole new life. When we've accepted Christ as our Savior, it's not just becoming religious or turning over a new leaf, uh, trying to do some religious reformation, but God has saved us. He's called us with a whole new calling. Even though you may remain in your own secular occupation, you are in a different occupation, spiritually speaking, when you've come to know Christ as your Savior. And God has great expectations for each one of us. So I will read uh, the preceding context. Let's start in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. You follow along with me. Uh, as I read this passage of scripture, Apostle Paul giving encouragement, admonitions to the church at Thessalonica. Thessalonica. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed, ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more, and that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you for your precious word. And now I ask that you would help me as I uh, deliver this message, that your spirit might guide the words that I say. I pray that hearts would be receptive to truth and that we would, yes, learn truth. But Lord, we ask your God that you would empower us to put it into practice. Lord, if there's somebody here with a heavy heart, because of sadness, I pray that they'd find encouragement in you. I pray there's somebody who's straying away from you, that they'd come back to you. I pray if there's someone 
who's come today that does not know you as Savior, may they come to know you today. Be sure that they have eternal life through your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, recently we looked at the significance of how God wants us to remain pure before him. When we do sin, we ask him to forgive us, but we should have the desire to please him in every aspect of our life. John, could you turn that down just a little bit? I'm getting some feedback up here. Thank you. So not only is God concerned about us living a life of holiness and purity, but he has some other areas in which we ought to be pleasing God with. Endeavoring to please God in every facet of life should be the, the goal of all believers. And I hope that is a goal that you have, that you want to please God with every part of your life, not just a small corner of your life, but every part. While the world is bent on pleasing themselves, there is a term that's been thrown around quite a bit the last few years, narcissism, love of self, basically. So there's the world is kind of going that direction. And if it's not pleasing themselves, oftentimes people are what we call men pleasers. They want to please other people. Uh, may surprise you, but there are some politicians that fit that category. They want to please other people. But way beyond trying to please ourselves, uh, and way beyond trying to please others, and although I do realize to a certain extent there's appropriateness in trying to please others, the Christians should be bent on pleasing their master. Now that's already mentioned in the passage we looked at last week. But if we're going to please our master, we must be willing to make wise choices. And this necessitates us moving out of what I call the status quo, uh, what everybody else is doing. And I think this illustration so many times in reference to what's going on in our culture today. Someone told me this. They said, when it comes to fish, any dead fish can swim downstream, but it takes a live fish to swim upstream. Now, let me say, by the Spirit of God and his help and his strength, we can swim upstream, spiritually speaking, and please him. It might seem like very difficult, might seem impossible at times. It may, we may have a lot of opposition coming, could be in your home, workplace, culture at large. But you and I are called to be always actively looking, how can I please my Savior? Now, we're going to press forward in this area, and that's the essence of this message, to press forward to please God. And I'm going to share with you two other categories that are spelled out in verses 9 through 12 that will help maybe motivate us, encourage us on, remind us of how some other areas in which we can please the Lord. So you might ask the question, how? 
And I suggest to you, based upon the scripture, that one way in which we can please the Lord is by abounding in love toward fellow believers. Abounding in love toward fellow believers. Now, uh, for those of you that understand a little bit about the language that the New Testament was written in, there are several words that are used for love and uh, that were commonly used in the New Testament. There's a word phileo and there's a word agape. Both of those words are actually used in this context, although you may not see it directly here. Uh, both these words were commonly used in the New Testament. The word phileo is uh, somewhat similar to the word Philadelphia. Now please, don't take the modern context of Philadelphia and put it back into there. I'm thinking that the original intention of whoever named that city Philadelphia really had some biblical overturns to it. Uh, possibly they thought about the Church of Philadelphia, which is spoken of very highly uh, in Asia. It's in Asia Minor, and that time God commended it to John. I don't know. It, it's kind of changed a little bit since then. But the, the idea there of Philadelphia is really the idea of brotherly love. Now, in the Old Testament context, when it talked about this kind of love, in the Old Testament context, it was basically talking about sibling love, all right? Love your brothers, love your sister, family ties. In secular uh, Greek, Hellenistic Greek, that idea carried as well it essentially meant loving your brothers and your sisters. Now, I should mention a comment here. If you've had some bad experiences with your brothers and sisters, then you've got to take that out of your mind. This is talking about having really good relationship with your brothers and sisters. So that word was used, and it was a very common word, but it became something that was used of brothers and sisters in Christ, and that was the most common usage in the New Testament. And the word, one word that is used in the original language is Philadelphia. It's, I'm not pronouncing uh, the word in Greek, but you have the idea of brotherly love, brotherly kindness. The other word very commonly used in the New Testament, Jesus used it frequently, Apostle used it frequently as well, is the word agape, and it had to do with a selfless type of love. So just kind of giving you an idea when we're talking about abounding in love, both the concepts are used in some respects. The New Testament uses them like interchangeably. They're very, very close. And it's, they're not synonyms per se, but they are very close. Now, without getting into any more detail about this, I suggest to you that love goes hand in hand with being a Christian. In other words, Christians ought to make this a regular practice. Come back to the passage of Scripture again, and let's just look at the admonition given right, right at the beginning. But as touching brotherly love, that's Philadelphia love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Now he uses the word agape love. So both these concepts are 
emphasizing the significance, the importance of having good interpersonal relationships, especially with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, there's another expression that is used here that I want to make a comment upon, and that is it says, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Uh, Christians are taught of God to have this kind of love. If you have the Holy Spirit in your heart, and you do if you are a true born-again Christian, then God teaches you this concept. Now, it may not be exactly the way you may think. It's not like God sits you down and he meticulously explains to you all the nuances of love. But God's Spirit is obviously going to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, and one part of the fruit of the Spirit is love. I don't know exactly how it works, but God puts in the heart of every single child of God an innate sense of love that they wouldn't have necessarily naturally. They might have some brotherly type of love from a secular standpoint, but there is a supernatural work of God that takes place in the hearts of other people. And Paul acknowledged this. He says, it's almost like, I really don't have to tell you this. Uh, I really don't have to say this. He does, explains, because you've already been taught about this, but what he wants to do is reinforce it. Reinforce it because all of us can sometimes fall back into a pattern of selfishness, allow the flesh to control us, and we lose sight of the fact that God wants us to have a regular practice, a regular habit of loving others. Now notice, uh, this should be the common experience of Christians, and it was the common experience of the Thessalonians. Again, I'm not setting the Thessalonians as being perfect. They were sinners saved by grace. But they did have a wonderful testimony, and it says, and indeed you do toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. Now this is, this is not just what I would call hyperbole or just some exaggeration. Somehow or other, the Apostle Paul was able to hear via Timothy, via some other Christians, whatever, he heard that this was a testimony that it not only was taking place internally in the church, but it had spread abroad. So, say, for instance, two other churches in Macedonia that we know of, Philippi and Berea, they were churches that the Apostle Paul mentions, or we have it mentioned in the book of Acts. There may have been other churches as well. It's like this. Either Timothy, one of his co-workers, perhaps a letter was written from one of these churches, whatever, and and again, we don't have it written specifically out. But somebody probably along the way said one thing about the Thessalonian believers is they really love each other. One thing about the Thessalonians, they really, they really show love. So their lives were characterized by love. That drives me to this particular point. It should be a testimony of every single believer. Now, some unbelievers may perhaps look at you as strange, may look at you as odd, peculiar, like radical, whatever. But bottom line is, 
every person who observes you, including Christians, should be able to see this mark of love in your life. Now, we're not talking about trying to paste this love on us. This is something God teaches us, and then we're supposed to practice this because this is what pleases God. He is, God is love. He shed his, his son shed his blood on the cross for us, his love, and we are supposed to emulate that. We are supposed to follow that love. Now, this common practice of love can be manifested in acts of kindness, considerateness, compassion, care, hospitality, thoughtfulness. And in case that list isn't big enough, I had a handout sheet here. Listen to all these things. These are one another statements in the Bible. Wash one another's feet. Oh, we won't want to do that. Well, obviously the point is be humble with each other. Love one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Be the same mind toward one another. Stop judging one another. Pursue the building up of one another. Accept one another. Admonish one another. That's not even half of the biblical admonitions, the one another's, that are in many respects fleshing out what it means to love. You and I ought to have this kind of love. Love goes hand in hand with being a Christian. Uh, I guess we could say that some people uh, will perhaps be very, what would you say, complimentary about the church they belong to, which is good. Uh, they may be very complimentary about their Christian heritage. They may be very, uh, or at least, you know, happy about that and grateful about that. They may actually say some very nice things about their Christian heritage they've had. But one mark that should stand out, and I try to emphasize this, and that is love. Yes, and that means loving those who don't always agree with us. Do you ever find anybody that doesn't agree with you? Uh, it means sometimes uh, um, just loving people even though it's like, ooh, this is really a stretch to me. You and I shouldn't be saying, why I love you, I just don't like you. No, that's not where it should be. We love people in spite of themselves, by the dis dis we disagree with and agree with or not. Notice it says this, and don't miss this, but as touchingly brotherly love, you need not a right unto you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And then it says, and indeed you do it toward all the brethren, which are in all Macedonia. Wow, that's, could, what if somebody said that about the believers at Victory Baptist Church? One thing about the believers at Victory Baptist Church, they not only love each other, but every time they interact with somebody else who's not part of their group or whatever, they love them. So, hope you don't lose sight of this, love goes hand in hand with being a Christian. Abounding in love toward fellow believers, notice the Christian must never reach a plateau of leveling off when it involves love. He says this, now God's taught you this, I don't really have to do this, but I'm sharing this with you, but see that you abound 
more and more. You know what that's talking about. You don't stay in the status quo. How can I grow more in this particular area? Now, here's an illustration that comes to my, my, my mind that after we had our first child, um, Julia was born, and it was just a thrilling thing. God put a love in our hearts for our first daughter. And I don't remember the particulars. Susan probably can mention this to you, but she asked uh, uh, Dr. Jordan at that time, I believe, uh, I don't know how I'm going to be able to love another child. And he said something to this effect, that's all right, God will, God will help you to love that next child and the next one and however many God gives. He just keeps you know, expanding that love tank, whatever you might call it, love reservoir out. So you love everyone. And in spite of maybe uh, you know, the struggles you may have, one or two, or maybe all of them, who knows what, God puts his big love in your heart and just keeps expanding, keeps expanding. Now, I want to use this because it, it, it kind of relates to the situation where my wife and I are involved, because we're helping churches that are going through transitions, like Victory Baptist. And uh, uh, we served as uh, served senior pastor of 2018 and started moving into helping churches somewhere to Victor Baptist. And we love Grace Baptist Church, and we love the people there, and now we're going to be able to find another church that are going to, we're going to love them the same. So we move over to Calvary Baptist in Lancaster, and I only knew, I don't know, a couple people there. Didn't really know many people at all. I knew some of the history of the church. And we were there. We weren't there a real long period of time, not even as long as we've been here. And God put a love in our heart for Calvary Baptist Church of Lancaster. God provided a pastor there. We moved to another church up in Bradford County. Didn't know anybody up there at that particular church. Bible-believing church, Grace Baptist Church of Ulster. And all of a sudden, God opened up and put another big love in our heart for people. To this day, we're in contact with a number of those people up there, and we miss. Can't be up there on weekends and stuff like that, and it's pretty far distance. But it's like, okay, here's another church that we love. And then we come to Victory Baptist Church. How are we going to love these people? I know a few people, not many. And God puts a love in our hearts. Do you, you understand how God just keeps developing this love for one another? God says believers are supposed to abound. It's overflowing it. Never can we get to a place in our life where we're satisfied that we've arrived, that we have done enough. There's always room for increase in growth and love. One of the early church fathers uh, said this, Tertullian was named, he quoted the heathen as saying, Behold how these Christians love one another. Oh, what a testimony. It shouldn't be for us to say, you don't love me enough. We should be saying to ourselves, I don't love you as much as I should, and I need to love you more. So, I guess you understand that in order to please God, yes, stay pure and holy, but we need to abound in love. But I noticed something else. I noticed that the Apostle Paul uh, expands on another area 
And verse 11, he says, And that you study to be quiet and to do your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you. And I'll read that other verse at this point in time. But have a life characterized by industriousness, not religious fanaticism. Now, you might ask the question, some of the younger generation might say, what's industriousness? I never heard of that word. Well, I guess we could use something else, having a good work ethic, and some other maybe of the younger generation say, what's that? I don't know what that is. <laughs> well, you, I think you understand. You're a mature enough audience to understand here. God is saying, we don't want to get caught up and, and have imbalances in our life. And there is a kind of like a paradoxical statement here when he says this, and that you study to be quiet. Um, literally, the idea is be zealously active in endeavoring to live quiet lives. Have ambition to be quiet. Now, you say, how does this apply? Well, I'll explain a couple in a couple seconds about this. But no restlessness, not frenzied anxiety about others or about the future. Now, can I give you just a little bit of the background? Um, and we're going to be talking about this, God willing, next week when we talk about the rapture and the Lord coming. There are several different sections in 1 Thessalonians as well as 2 Thessalonians that give indication that the believers had heard some things about the Lord's coming but were anxious about it. Uh, they had disquiet in their soul about it. They didn't understand what was going on, and the Apostle Paul tries to clear that up in the, in the following context. But this restlessness, this anxiety, works its way out to almost, I uh, would call, a, a real spiritual imbalance. And it seems like, though there may have not been official date setters about when the Lord was coming, it seems like this restlessness worked its way out where some of the people were thinking, the Lord is coming so soon, there's no point in me staying at work. And so they quit, thinking it, the Lord was going to come just a short period of time. Now, do I have to tell you that was a bad decision, a part of some people to do, real bad decision? You say, well, that was the only time in history where people have done that. I'll not take the time to read this, but I have a, a commentator, John Phillips, who went through some of the history of how professing Christians have set dates, and then that didn't happen, so they pushed the date ahead. And then they set another date, and they pushed the date ahead. Some literally gave up their jobs thinking the Lord was going to come in such a day. You would It's unbelievable how much... History shows that people were disquieted in their souls because they heard wrong things about the Lord's coming. Now that's a little bit of the backdrop of what he's saying here. Basically is saying is, stay industrious. Don't give up work. Please understand at least a little bit here, probably most of these people worked with their hands. They were we call blue-collar type work, working shipyard because of the harbor here and things like this. 
Uh, we don't have indication, there's no indication that they're wealthy people. There may have been a few wealthy people. But he wants them to, in, in light of what may come down the line, he said, you want to please God, stay active, zealously active, to lead a quiet life. Don't get worried about it. Don't get, oh, he's, you know, this is going to happen, that's going to happen. Attend conscientiously to your own personal affairs. You see this idea here? And to do your own business. Um, yeah, that's, that's probably true in a number of churches, but there are people that are known to be rather fanatical about things, and they become busybodies and loafers, and that's all forbidden by God. So Christians are supposed to attend conscientiously to their own personal affairs. Be a good steward of your time and your resources. Nosiness is never acceptable. Jealousy, prying, criticizing, all these things God is displeased with, and they should not have any connection with a believer. So, have a life characterized by industriousness. We're talking about having balance. Make work a necessary part of your life. All right? Time to time I use, I use a statement, an illustration, personal example. When I was making a transition for senior pastor position, I uh, decided that it was time for me to make that transition. And people would say, oh, are you retiring? I said, no, I'm not retiring. And somebody else would say, oh, you are, uh, no, I'm not retiring. I resisted that. I don't like that word retirement. And I changed it a little bit. I said, I'm rebooting. All right. Modern technology here. But I didn't like it. Now I compromise along the way and say I'm kind of quasi-retired and stuff like this. But part of the reason why I had this negative connotations in my mind uh, that I resisted using those, that idea was I never want to be characterized by somebody who's just sleeping in a hammock, rocking on a rocking chair. Uh, now, some of you are retired, that's okay. But I know some of you who are retired, you still keep busy doing things that are good. Maybe gardening, clean, who knows what. You're still actively involved. Do I need to tell you this, that work was not a result of the curse? Some people think. Saul Button years ago said this, work never killed anyone, but I'm not taking any chances. Someone... I heard someone say, they asked a teenager uh, what manual labor was, and they said, well, wasn't that the former president of Mexico? There are, there are people who are just, I know it's a rough word to use, but they're brain dead about work. Don't be brain dead about work. God made us so that we work. God made us, and if you're not working in some way or other, Again, not necessarily out in the workforce per se, but if you're not involved in being industrious, you are not pleasing God. Find something to do. There's all you can volunteer your time to help. You can write letters. You can do. There's all kinds of things. Stay active. 
And sometimes it gets to a point where a person cannot physically do what they did before. That's, that's true, and sometimes things change. I understand that. But industriousness is all part of God's plan. Make it a necessary part of your life. Indian Gandhi, you've heard of him, said, my grandfather once told me that there are two kinds of people, those who do the work and those who take the credit. He told me to try to be in the first group, for there is much less competition there. It's rather profound, and I don't normally uh, quote Gandhi, but nevertheless, uh, you may find, well, it's not popular, you know, and people bragging that they are, you know, they're not. There are places and times where individuals uh, make adjustments and downsize, we call that, and, and that's perfectly legitimate, okay? But if you got your life so that it's not doing something productive, not doing something productive for God, not doing something productive for society, you are not headed in the direction that God wants. Make have a life characterized by industrious. I, I've counseled with several different individuals who uh, were considering making some adjustments. Okay, they felt like they couldn't continue on their particular career because of stress, things like this. And I have said to them, make sure you get something that you're going to do, maybe not as stressful, something to do, because that's what God wants. Now, I said it in various ways and so on and try to be as kind as gracious about it but God expects us to be involved in busyness and when these Christians whoever they were and we don't know how many of them were starting to back off of the regular duties Paul has to nudge him forward and he has to say to them stay busy work with your own hands as we commanded you now notice this that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. There's two results of this, having a high priority work. It strengthens your testimony toward the world. Notice that you may walk properly toward those that are outside. Do you care about how other people think of you? Yeah, well, you're not going to compromise, obviously, just because you want to be men pleaser, but you do want to have a good testimony to those around about you. So... Somebody asks you what you're doing, saying, I'm not doing anything. What? <laughs> you may say that in a joking way and uh, you know, try to get a rise out of them, but in reality, you should be busy about doing the Lord's work. And some people who aren't maybe in the secular workforce and God's allowed them to be able in a kind of a quasi-retirement uh, environment, there's so many opportunities to serve the Lord and many, many Christians I've met who have made that choice when they had the opportunities, uh, they came by and they jumped on them and served God in, in, in so effective ways. It results in a lack of having to depend upon others. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20, 28 says, Let him who stole steal no more. And that was common stealing. So he is that. But rather, let him labor working with his hands the things which are good that he may have to him that needs. And there's a progression there. We work, do that which is good. We have, yes, to meet our needs, but also to reach out to help other people as well. 
We don't have to be dependent upon others. We don't have to be sponges. Uh, we don't have to have an entitlement mindset. There's nothing inconsistent between honest toil and personal holiness. You and I are called to be busy, not just busy for busy's sake, but busy serving the Lord, busy with the priorities that God has given to us. Um, if a person goes this direction, then they're not going to be expecting others to take care of them. They're not going to uh, <clears throat> expect others to just give them free handouts. They're not going to be resting on other people's shoulders all the time. Uh, someone said they're not going to be lying in their hammock all day. So you and I are called upon to have a life characterized by industriousness, not any form of religious fanaticism. Man, I, I, I could not tell you how many times I've said over the last couple of years, I hope the Lord comes. And there have been times I said, please come now. I need you to come now, Lord. And I felt that way, and you probably have felt that way. And it seems like it just, I can't get that out of my mind. I want the Lord to come. And I, I really, I mean, I really, wouldn't, I really wouldn't mind if the Lord came before we had the dinner afterwards. Now, I'm, if he doesn't come, I'm going to enjoy the dinner. But uh, I'm anxious for the Lord to come. But the anxiousness for the Lord to come, and he could come at any time, I know that, does not in any way diminish my own personal responsibilities to abound in love and be busy serving him. Busy serving him. I, I love that verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So we keep on moving forward. And as I started out, the thought was press forward to please God. Hopefully, you've already started a pattern a long time ago of staying holy, staying pure. Hopefully, you have already started a pattern of loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. And now you're going to just be pushed a little bit further. How can I love them even more. And then when it comes to like thinking, well, I can't wait till retirement. I can't wait until I don't have to do anything any longer. You push that idea and say, okay, I'm going to move out of that particular area, but where else can get it? Get it? What, area, what other area can I move into so I can busy, be busy for the Lord until he comes whenever that may be. So here we are. Press forward to please God. Press forward to please God. Press forward to please God. So, this week, when you have a few moments of reflection, may this idea come back, am I pressing forward to please my God? And if you're not, come back to the drawing table, come back to where it should be, and start doing what He wants you to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you, dear God, for the admonitions that we have from your word. And you want us to move forward, not just stay in the same place and be satisfied, not just be looking in the rearview mirror all the time of what we've done in the past, 
looking through the windshield, looking ahead at how we can serve you more effectively and how we can love others. We've got a lot of areas that we can grow in in this, in this domain of loving, and we pray that you'd help us. Help me to be an example in this area. Help us be busy serving you, faithfully serving you. Whenever that time comes that you come for us, may we be found faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Keep your heads bowed, your eyes closed just for a moment. Perhaps through these brief admonitions, God's spoken to your heart about some area where you, you know you need to make some changes. Could be the area of love we're talking about. Could be the area of using your, li- your life productively and serving and helping other people and being busy about God's work. And you, you want God to change you in this area and you're willing to surrender yourself to him. I'm not going to call your name or embarrass you and do that but I'd like to pray for you. Would you simply put your hand up and say, Pastor, I have a need in the area. Okay, I see several hands. Thank you for your honesty about that. And even now in the quietness of these moments, would you say, God, I need your help in this area. And, and I, I've been failing, and I ask you, God, to forgive me. I want, I want to please you. I do want to please you, and help me, dear God. To, to put into practice your words so in the end, when I do meet you, uh, you're going to be able to sell, say, well done, thou good, good and faithful servant. May you surrender your heart to him in the quietness of these moments. Lord, thank you for these who have indicated, raising their hands, and you know the need of their hearts. Thank you for their tenderness. To you, and I pray that they would find uh, forgiveness where they've had shortcomings, and that they would resolve in purpose to reach out to others the way you want them to. And uh, help us all, Lord. We need to grow in these areas. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. All right. Would you take your hymnal, please? And we're going to sing. 284, I believe it is, 284, um, Beneath the Cross of Jesus. All right, let's stand as we sing, and we're going to sing the first two verses of this, 284, Beneath the Cross of Jesus, before we have our communion service. cross of Jesus I I stand within the home within the wilderness a rest upon the way from the of the noontide heat and the burden of the day. Second verse as the last. Upon the cross of Jesus.
for me. may be seated. Now we'll take a few moments, important moments, nevertheless, 